This week on the Back Table Podcast. So mainly, you know, any patient I'm considering an ablation technique like a cryo on, either due to comorbidities, patient preference, um, mainly it's just lesion location. I find, uh, you know, anterior lesions uh, are great for laparoscopic cryo. Posterior lesions are great for interventional radiology, um, mainly just due to access to the lesion. You know, anteriorly, the bowel is going to be in the way. So, you know, when we're dissecting out the kidney, we mobilize the colon. We can clearly get to the anterior portion of the kidney very easily. Any posterior lesions, you have to dissect and flip the kidney entirely, and it can be very challenging um, when when you're in that location versus for interventional radiology, that's pretty much the best shot at the kidney is posteriorly. Um, so location is really what drives my decision as far as when you're considering a, a, a ablation technique. Hey guys, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck, and I'll be your host today. We are recording this about a month after SIR. During the conference, we got a lot of good feedback from you guys about the app and the podcast. Per usual, we're always on the lookout for more feedback, so if you have some, reach out to us on the website. The website address is www.backtable.com, or hit us up on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore backtable. Please don't forget that underscore. Um, With that out of the way, let me just read a word from our uh, sponsor for this podcast. RadPad was developed for physicians by physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and DSA or digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. Uh, Go check out radpad.com for more information or contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. And if you do reach out to that, uh, those guys, please let them know that you heard about, it, heard about it from the Backtable podcast. With that out of the way, I'm happy to introduce the topic for today. We'll be discussing renal masses. Uh, we've covered this topic in the past. Uh, for those of the listeners that are interested, feel free and go back and listen to episode 15. Um, today, we're going to be taking on this topic with a slightly different perspective uh, with that said, let's introduce today's guest. So uh, we have today uh, Arthur Kerr, urology, and Shelby Bennett, IR. Um, guys, if you want, let's just uh, introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your practice. Arthur, we'll start with you. So I'm a urologist here in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, my practice includes uh, mainly uh, kidney cancer, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, as well as general urology. I do both uh, minimally invasive approaches such as laparoscopy, and uh, robotic surgery. Treatment of renal cell carcinoma include uh, laparoscopic nephrectomies, robotic partial nephrectomies, and cryoablation of renal masses. Okay, nice, nice. Uh, Shelby, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. So um, I am uh, predominantly here in Santa Fe practicing vascular interventional radiology which is kind of a neck to toes practice. Um, I think I'm, I may be like 85 or 90% outpatient, um, but I cover uh, hospitals um, in rural parts of the state occasionally, uh, such as Los Alamos and Alamogordo. Okay, nice. And assume uh, renal mass or some kind of thermal ablations for renal mass is a part of your practice? 
Yeah, I'm heavily interventional oncology oriented. Okay, nice. Hey, Arthur, just just for some background um, with, with maybe some of our listeners who are uninitiated, we have a fair amount of listeners who are medical students. We just kind of briefly take us through uh, like what the training uh, for urology looks like, um, you know, bypass medical school. But, you know, what, what, after you graduate medical school, what that looks like. So urology training involves a year or two years of general surgery, depending on the programs. Traditionally, we had all six-year programs, but as funding got cut for six-year programs, a lot of the programs have migrated to a five-year program, which is traditionally a year of general surgery, followed by four years of urology. There are uh, you know, fellowships, oncology fellowships within urology, as well as endourology fellowships that sometimes uh, patients who are, uh, excuse me, urologists who are dealing with renal masses will undergo, but for the most part, a lot of uh, non-specialized or fellowship-trained urologists are also taking on these cases. Would you say, and you know, maybe we're talking generalities, uh, the, the majority of people coming out of a urology residency, do most of them go on to fellowships or most of them just go out into practice? Or, I'd say or most people, most people just go out into practice. It's uh, if the academic types are, are typically doing fellowships, and it also depends on the the strength of your program and experience and how comfortable you are. A lot of guys, I feel, from my program at, at Tulane in New Orleans, went straight into practice. Very rare that they would undergo fellowship training, just because we had a good experience and and training. All right, guys, so uh, let's get into talking about referrals for renal masses specifically. Um, Arthur, why don't we start with you in, in talking about like how these patients uh, end up in your clinic? So the majority of these patients are referred through incidental imaging, meaning patient is undergoing workup for something else. Uh, I had a patient last week who had a pinched nerve in his spine, underwent an MRI, came in with the renal mass. Another common theme is, uh, you know, abdominal pain in the emergency room, undergo a CT, pick up an incidental mass. So I feel the majority of these patients are asymptomatic from their mass, but rather have another presenting symptom, which leads to the diagnosis. I see. I see. So by the time they get to your clinic, are there, is there any other part of the workup that, that you're kind of rounding out or are most of them coming with a presumptive diagnosis of, you know, enhancing renal mass or RCC? Most of them come with a pretty definitive or, or non-definitive scan, depending, you know, if we're talking about a complex cyst versus a, you know, a solid mass. But the majority of them, you know, mainly are just presenting with their imaging and, and looking for some answers on where to go from there. Okay. Shelby, how about you and your practice in terms of how are patients coming to you and what's what does the referral stream look like from an IR perspective? Well, the vast majority when they show up in my clinic have already been to see urology and urology requests an evaluation for percutaneous ablation for any number of reasons. Every now and then somebody will make their way in from um, an oncologist or from even like a, a primary care um, because they discover the mass, they see it's growing, and they know that you know IR can treat these lesions. But when I see patients in that setting, I have them see urology first before we develop a treatment plan and then come back for the treatment plan. Okay, that's fair. 
for a question for both of you guys, do any of these patients that are being referred to you, do any of them come with a biopsy proven diagnosis? Is that ever like a hiccup or a wrinkle in the workup process that people are coming with path proven diagnoses? Arthur, we'll, we'll start with you. So renal biopsies I don't find are, are very common. They ha- they do go in and out of vogue as far as the urology world. And I believe the last uh, meeting I went to at San Francisco American Ur- Urologic Association last year, there was a guy who was kind of getting uh, renal biopsies back in vogue. But I try to shy away from them, I think, uh, you know, except in certain circumstances there can be a, you know, quote unquote, negative biopsy and mixed pathology. So I really re- rely heavily on the imaging uh, to kind of push me towards intervention or observation. And I find biopsies can just either, you know, potential concern for seeding of the biopsy versus given mm-hmm. inconclusive diagnosis, which, you know, isn't really going to change my my treatment algorithm. So it's not something I commonly use. Looking more into the workup. So outside of the imaging, Arthur, whenever you're doing your initial consultation for someone who comes to you with either what looks like RCC with some pretty definitive imaging, what then does the rest of your workup, like how do you round out your workup in in terms of, you know, just talking to the patient and finding out from things like from anesthesia risk to surgical risk? um, Like what are some of the things that you look into? So obviously it depends on the the size of the mass. If you know there's a concern for uh, metastatic disease, you know consider chest X-ray, CT of the chest, some blood work, um, you know further imaging. Sometimes these patients come in with just kind of a CT, you know without contrast or just with contrast. So I like to get a dedicated either CT or MRI with and without contrast to really get a good look at things. Sometimes that can change your you know, your treatment algorithm. The other things I'm looking at, uh, mass size, location, anterior versus posterior, as well as just the patient in general. What do they look like? Are they a good surgical candidate? Are they, you know, ton of comorbidities and may not be a great candidate? Um, So just kind of a general feel. I don't have a particular algorithm, but just kind of an overall feel for the patient will help me push them one way or another, mainly surgical procedures, IR procedures versus, you know, observation in some of these patients. Sure. Well, you kind of take us a little bit through your thought process in terms of of which patients end up in observation, which patient ends up uh, maybe getting referred to IR, and then which patients end up going to surgery. And I know that's kind of a, a broad topic, so we, we can break it up into pieces, but kind of takes us a little bit through your algorithm between observation uh, maybe a percutaneous intervention by an interventional radiologist or something that you're going to take uh, to the OR? So observation, mainly based on uh, comorbidities as well as size of the lesion, uh, very challenging. You know, these smaller, sometimes you get patients with centimeter mass that, you know, you really can't tell what it is. It may be a, a renal cell or maybe, you know, kind of a hyperdense cyst or, or who knows. So, um you know, these smaller masses, I definitely recommend observation. The patients are, you know, regardless of age, have multiple comorbidities with a relatively small mass, you know, definitely le- less than three centimeters. That's a good observation 
population as well. Um, and there's no, again, checklist. It's really just a general feel. And a lot of these things are, are patient-driven, meaning when you get in these uh, kind of iffy cases, some people are more inclined for intervention versus some people prefer to observe. So when you get in the challenging scenario of, hey, what do you want to do about this? It could go multiple ways based on patient approach as well. Sure. Shelby, switching over to you for a second, in terms of which patients end up in your IR clinic, how does that work from a perspective of how do you round out your clinical workup and determining which patients um, you'll segue either into observation uh, people who are appropriate uh, ablation candidates or people who you may refer back to surgery or, or urology? Um, I second what Dr. Kerr says. It depends on you know how aggressive or confident we are uh, that the uh, diagnosis is RCC, how aggressive the tumor is. Is it growing? Is it stable over time? And then the, the patient's comorbidities. So you know if this is a young patient um, and they have a you know, three-centimeter image uh, a three centimeter tumor with imaging consistent with RCC, then I would say, look, you know, surgery may give you a better durable um, response. So you, you know, you may be a better surgical candidate than than RC than uh, than what IR can provide. Um, but if the patient uh, is is sick, if they have you know heart disease, they've had prior bypass surgery, a little bit older. Um, and, and the tumor is growing, uh, really, really slowly, you know, as patients 85, then I say, you know, you can, you can watch this over time. This may uh, not end up being the thing that, uh, uh, that gets you in the end. Um, but I think you have to offer even these very old, very sick patients percutaneous ablation if they're not good surgical candidates. Okay. That's fair. So, uh, Shelby, question about your practice in general um which uh, the the what's what's primarily the the type of tumor that you're treating uh and and i guess what i mean by that like what are some imaging characteristics that are are common with your patient populations in terms of size of the tumor locations of the tumor or do you see people from kind of all, all all over the map on that one yeah, certainly all over the map. Practicing in New Mexico, uh, you know, it's an underserved state. So we see people coming in that have had these tumors growing for years undetected. So sometimes they're very large, um, you know, like five, six, seven, eight centimeters. Um, what I like to see is under four centimeters, preferably under three centimeters, um, you know, like a lower pole, middle pole, peripheral, not central near the vasculature. That's what, if I could design the perfect patient, that's who I would see. But, you know, out here, probably like a lot of places, um, you see the full spectrum. Sure. Arthur, switching over a little bit to the staging system of RCC, will you talk about the staging system that you use in your practice and how that drives um, maybe your treatment algorithm a little bit? So I mainly use the uh, T&M system. So the majority of the treatment options, I guess, as far as ablation versus removal, um, you know, T1A less than four centimeters is going to be the majority of kind of these masses where we're going to consider partial nephrectomy versus uh, total nephrectomy versus, you know, percutaneous intervention. When you start to get above four centimeters, it, you know, really depends on the, the patient as well as the location of the mass. If it's, you know, more than four centimeters, but extremely exophytic, 
I think these are still, um, you know, candidates for either ablation techniques or partial nephrectomies, but even a four centimeter or three and a half centimeter mass that's located centrally, that's really going to push me towards a uh, laparoscopic nephrectomy typically, just because I think some of these can start to invade the, you know, sinus fat. You could look at, be looking at a, a T3A lesion and potentially need for going back and removing the kidney or post-operative uh, chemotherapy. Okay. So thinking about maybe if we just focus a little bit more on like our T1A lesions and presuming that these T1A lesions don't look like they're um, have any other suspicious features, like they're not particularly centrally located, but more of the exophytic mid to lower pole situation. Will you, um, Arthur, kind of talk about some of the treatment options available to you as, as a urologist, like from nephrectomies to partials to robots, uh, you know, kind of talk about what, what are some of the tools in your tool belt for treatment? So typically nephrectomy, I'll do laparoscopically instead of robotically, just because I think, uh, you know, you don't really have to construct anything. The robotic approach is a little bit more expensive. It takes a little bit longer for the setup, et cetera. So I just use a laparoscopic approach. Anytime I'm doing a uh, partial nephrectomy, that's typically going to involve removal and reconstruction, so pretty much 100% of the time I'm going to use the robot in that. And then the other approach I use um, is cryoablation, which sometimes I'll do laparoscopically. The majority of the time, again, no construct reconstruction needed. But sometimes I will do it robotically if there's a big defect after you freeze the lesion and need to do some reconstruction over the cryo. I think the, the robotic approach can help in this uh, instance. The other thing I, that can help differentiate a, a partial nephrectomy versus cryoablation, um, I like the solid masses for, you know, the partial nephrectomy robotically. When you get into some of these more complex cystic lesions that are just difficult to either get a good plane or remove entirely, um, I think cryoablation can be a good technique because, A, you don't have to remove anything, and then B, it'll it'll prevent spread and kind of remove the whole area without uh, you know leaving anything behind. Let me let me ask a follow up question to that, and, and you'll have to just pardon my ignorance about you know what what it is you guys are doing like during during the uh, the surgery. But what do you mean by like the reconstruction part of it? So once you remove the mass, you then have to you know reconstruct the area with sutures in order to kind of fill in the defect as well as stop the bleeding. The, you know, the kidney is quite a vascular structure. So once you remove that tumor, it's typically on clamp. And then you have a a time period where you can close the the defect and uh, maintain hemostasis. All right. Now I see. Now I see. Um, Shelby, uh, talking about your uh, percutaneous, uh, what I would imagine is thermal ablation uh, techniques, what are you using primarily for your treatment of uh, T1A lesions? I really like cryoablation, um, particularly in the kidneys. Uh, you know, if the lesion is larger, microwave can give you a bigger burn zone with uh, with fewer probes. Um, it's a pretty reliable size, also. But I, I go to cryo more often than not for three or four centimeter or less renal tumors. Are you doing anything bigger than three or four centimeters? 
Rarely. If a patient presents with a six or eight centimeter, let's just say as an example, renal tumor, I'll talk to the urologist and we'll kind of have a discussion about, you know, what are our goals here? What are we trying to do? Why is a nephrectomy not a good idea? And in some patients, uh, you know, we can treat larger lesions over multiple sections. Uh, I'm sorry, over over multiple sessions often. Um, and, and sometimes the larger lesions do great for several years. And if you have to go back and touch it up uh, five years down the road in this older patient, um, then I think you're really helping them. Okay. I, I, I can actually uh, think of a case that, that Shelby and I kind of did together where patient had metastatic breast cancer, six centimeter lower pole right renal mass, and uh, renal insufficiency, so not a great... Uh, you know, candidate, but what we ended up doing, I ended up putting a stent in and Shelby ended up cryoblading the mass. I don't think we probably, you know, cured the area, but it probably slowed it down and given her comorbidities, you know, I, I think she ended up responding pretty well to the, to the treatment. Okay, nice. And Shelby, when do you, what do you like about cryo versus microwave? Like what are the advantages you see in the kidney that maybe um, microwave doesn't offer cryotherapy? Well, one thing that you can say for sure is that with cryoablation, you can watch the ice ball grow. Now, you, you can't see necessarily with microwave or with RFA where the heating area is. And so if you're adjacent to colon or if you're adjacent to some other structure that you don't want to um, interact with, if you're adjacent to the, you know, if, if you're at the lower pole and there's a, the ureter nearby, you can watch the ice ball and stay away from uh, adjacent organs. So that's one thing that I like. Some people say that, uh, you know, cryo is a little bit safer. Maybe you don't have as much hemorrhage. Um, but I'm not really sure that that's true. The results, uh, you know, sort of how effective each modality is, um, is, is kind of a wash and, and goes back and forth over time as papers come out. Okay. Arthur, let me ask you this. So when you have a patient and if we just still stick with T1A lesions, which patients are you more prone to treating and handling on your own versus cases that you find are more appropriate for referral to IR? And I know we're talking in generalities, but maybe if you had to design uh, the perfect patient who you think, wow, this is, this is a, a knockout for IR and, and I'm going to stay away from versus a patient maybe who's in the middle ground, we'll kind of, you know, take, take two um, uh, looks at it. So mainly, you know, any patient I'm considering an ablation, technique like a cryo on either due to comorbidities, patient preference. Um, mainly it's just lesion location. I find, uh, you know, anterior lesions uh, are great for laparoscopic cryo. Posterior lesions are great for interventional radiology, um, mainly just due to access to the lesion. You know, anteriorly, the bowel is going to be in the way. So, you know, when we're dissecting out the kidney, we mobilize the colon, we can clearly get to the anterior portion of the kidney very easily. Any posterior lesions, you have to dissect and flip the kidney entirely, and it can be very challenging um, when when you're in that location versus for interventional radiology, that's pretty much the best shot at the kidney is posteriorly. Um, so location is really what drives my decision as far as when you're considering a a, a ablation technique. Shelby, with you, um, and, and I know we touched on it a little bit before, what are, what are 
um, T1A lesions that you consider to be chip shots and ones that you kind of scratch your head about and, and maybe him or Hall, like in terms of location? I mean, I think we all agree like posteriorly is, is easily accessible, but in terms of mid upper pole versus maybe something that's more medial, uh, is there something that you shy away from or think twice about? Sure. Um, I, and, and as far as something being a chip shot, uh, I think twice about everything. And, and that's because even the most simple renal case, uh, renal ablation case can turn sour. It's rare, but it's a really sure. vascular to, um, organ. And so you want to be really careful with that. And that being said, I think central lesions, you know, these probes are pretty large. Um, the, the ablation probes are pretty large. And so if you're sticking this uh, needle close to the hilum, uh, you might have more complications such as hemorrhage or injury to the, the ureter collecting system. So I like I like inferior, like lower pole. Um, like Dr. Kerr said, posterior location is good. If it's upper pole, sometimes you run into um, the pleura getting in your way. But there are techniques where you can do an iatrogenic pneumothorax, get the lung out of the way, and still even treat the upper pole tumors that are protected by the, the pleura. So um, there's ones I like, lower pole, peripheral, posterior. Um, but nothing is really completely off limits, you know? Sure, sure. So... You kind of touched on it, and, and I'll throw it back over to Arthur. In terms of, of complications, I think there's complications that we that are, are quoted in the papers and that we talk about and, and we you know consult patients on. And there's the and there's the complications we see in, in, in practice. Arthur, will you drill down a little bit onto the complications that you talk about and you and you consent your patients for versus the complications that I wouldn't say continually run into, but the more common complications associated with maybe a laparoscopic uh, cryo or um, a, a, um, a partial nephrectomy? So it just depends on what type of cases you're taking on. But generally, uh, the majority of complications that involve the kidney, I think, are, are hemorrhage or, or blood loss just because it is such a, a vascular organ, particularly even uh, cryoablation because, you know, we've uh, mobilized the colon that's no longer compartmentalized within the retroperitoneum, I do find myself more and more reconstructing the area after ablating the area because of uh, hemorrhage risk. You know, other complications, I think, with uh, robotic partial nephrectomy and cryoablation are are mainly uh, tumor recurrence, either if you get an incomplete uh, ablation or a positive margin with your resection. Um, I'm a community urologist, so I don't take on a lot of real huge risky partials as far as getting down into the collecting system, you know, extensively or requiring extensive uh, uh, reconstruction. I just find that sometimes with going with ablation or partial techniques, if you have a contralateral kidney that's healthy, um, that a nephrectomy can be the w- best way to go because you're going to eliminate these recurrences and possible hemorrhages and things like this by just kind of trying to take on a case that may not be the best for either an ablation or a partial technique. But for the most part, I think, you know, ablations and partials are going to, the most common complications are going to be either a hemorrhage or a recurrence. Okay. And whenever you run into that uh, complication in terms of hemorrhage, I'm sure there's differences between running into it while you still have the patient open versus when you've closed and then you suspect like some continued bleeding. Do you often refer to IR for potential angiograms or are there some things, are there some bleeds that you take back to the OR? 
obviously, if you know if you have an extensive hemorrhage, you got to take it back to the OR. I don't think you can, you know, rely on IR and you know if they're kind of crashing. And that's why I typically leave a drain, mainly just because it'll give you a, a um, idea of what's coming out. Obviously, sure. the downside with that is sometimes the suction just doesn't allow things to clot. So some people discourage a drain. Um, but again, very rarely, if you do a decent reconstruction, are you going to, you know, see that type of hemorrhage. When I'm doing laparoscopic cryoablation, I typically don't do, use a drain. Um, and then some people, I guess, you know, depending on your comfort level and the skill set of your IR guy could do a selective embolization. I've never really had to do it, nor do I think I have the, you know, the guys in my institution who could do it. But I guess at, at certain, uh, you know, higher end institutions, uh, that would be possibility. And I will give Shelby some props because he's he's actually not available to me as an inpatient. Um, so it's no knock on him as far as the, you know, selective embolization. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, Shelby, in terms of um, complications that you consult uh, or, or kind of counsel your patients on versus ones that you've seen play out in practice, uh, would you echo those sentiments, mainly bleeding and then risk of recurrence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I tell my patients, you're going to have some hematuria. It's going to be right. It's going to be red enough that it's going to be startling to you. And that's normal as long as it goes away in a couple of days. Um, I tell my patients there's a risk of infection. You know, you can get an abscess from this um, and the risk of uh, you know, incomplete ablation. But by far, the, the, the thing that I, I talk with them the most about is hemorrhage, because something around 4% of these patients, maybe a little bit less, will get significant hemorrhage that's going to require them to have a, you know, maybe a transfusion or at least IV fluids or overnight observation. Uh, Predominantly, though, these patients can be done in the outpatient setting, you know, if they're properly selected uh, after thermal ablation. All right, guys, so switching gears a little bit, let's talk about follow-up. So after treatment, patients that you think you have uh, good margins or, or maybe good ablation margins on, how do you follow those patients up after the procedure or the surgery? Shelby, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I kind of have a standard uh, post-interventional oncology procedure follow-up protocol, and um, I prefer MR in patients who are uh, who have contraindications to MRI. I go with CT, and that's a multi-phased sort of like an RCC protocol um, at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months. And then if they make it to 12 months and they have no signs of recurrence, then we have the option to go to yearly follow-up. Some people would skip the one-month follow-up, but I like that because it tells me right away if I missed part of the lesion. Sure. If if you have some residual enhancing uh, tumor afterwards, have you had to go back in and reablate at that? Like, do you use the one month as a potential um, branch point in terms of your decision making? Absolutely. If at any time I see a little bit of residual tumor, I'll just talk to the patient about it and bring him back. And in these larger lesions, four, five, six centimeter lesions, I tell them, look, this is probably going to be a multi-step treatment. So we'll get what we can today at one, three, six months. Whenever we find out um, if, you know, if there's some that we missed, then we'll just uh, touch it up at that time. Sure. Arthur, how about you in terms of your follow-up? So mine's a little looser and mainly probably just based on case selection. I, I typically don't check these guys until six months. Um, I'll typically do a CT at that time. 
and kind of go from there. It all depends on my level of suspicion from there. I'll kind of keep them on a six-month protocol if I'm concerned versus I'll, you know, do a one-year follow-up. And a lot of times, based on my level of concern, I'll also transition these patients to follow up with an oncologist, you know, at their discretion as far as follow-up just because um, based on my volume, et cetera, it'd be challenging to um, follow these patients indefinitely just based on clinic uh, need, et cetera. Sure, sure. It, it, you know, I guess you get diminishing returns um, from utilizing your resources and having these guys follow up that often. Um, one thing that I forgot to ask, Shelby, in terms of biopsying before you do a, your ablations, is that ever something you perform? Do you do any percutaneous biopsy at the same time as ablation, or do you ablate without ever having tissue? Yeah, I certainly ablate without having tissue, and I prefer to not go in and biopsy if there's good enough imaging. And, you know, some institutions have policies where they biopsy first if possible. And like Dr. Kerr said earlier, it kind of goes in and out of vogue over time. Um, But my thought is, if it's growing over time, uh, it's an enhancing, you know, solid or complex lesion that's growing over time, then I will either ablate it and, and we'll be done. Or I'll do a biopsy ablation at the same time through the same tract. Okay. Arthur, is that ever a sticking point or something that you see as a uh, downside for a percutaneous IR ablation in a practice that doesn't uh, do biopsy or, or doesn't ever establish any tissue diagnosis prior to treatment? Not necessarily. I mean, obviously the patients want to know they want a biopsy, but I'll be honest, sometimes when I'm um, cryoblading complex renal cysts, things like this, which can have spillage and can be challenging Mm -hmm. to get a a biopsy, um, I won't biopsy. I'll just, you know, treat the area and assume it was a, you know, a renal cell carcinoma and monitor it. I know it's not as gratifying as, you know, you, you want a diagnosis and then you want to be able to follow it, but I feel sometimes the you know, the biopsy itself can either cause, you know, spillage or, or further complication um, and not and still not yield a, a appropriate diagnosis. So biopsy is just one of those things. It's kind of case by case, and ideally we'd all love to have a biopsy and a diagnosis, but sometimes technically it's it's just not possible. Sure. So switching gears again a little bit, talking about collaboration between IR and urology. So, Arthur, starting with you, can you kind of talk about your relationship with IR in terms of, you know, when you were getting started and starting to build up your practice and you have a big um, oncology patient population, what was it like kind of building the bridges with interventional radiology? I mean, it's really just the I guess, community-dependent. Then I think in New Mexico, it's a relatively non-competitive environment just because of there's such a need in so many cases going around that, um, you know, you don't get a real kind of pushback between IR and urology as far as trying to take on cases. And, you know, it's really just getting to know the people you're working with. Um, I work with Shelby uh, occasionally, as well as there's a couple interventional radiologists who are available as inpatients. So it just depends on their comfort level, because occasionally I will refer somebody for a percutaneous procedure, and based on the location, they may kind of, you know, balk at it versus, you know, also kind of figuring out what's best for the patient. So it, it's really just getting to know your your 
resources in the community, what who prefers what, as well as getting the patients to the you know appropriate person. Sure. Shelby, how about you? Same question in regards to building bridges with urology and any any roadblocks or things that you thought like facilitated relationships between you and the urologist. Uh, I think I've been pretty fortunate to work in communities from uh, you know medical school up until now, where uh, everyone's most concerned with what's best for the patient, and so um, you know I see people kind of doing. Uh, following the protocol, you know, is the patient a good surgical candidate? Uh, do they want to go for a cure? Then they usually get surgery. And, and if it's, um, you know, a lesion that's amenable to percutaneous ablation um, or in patients who aren't good surgical candidates, then I see them in clinic. So uh, it's kind of come naturally, I guess. The kidney's not necessarily that forgiving. So if you're one of these guys, either in the urology world or an IR world, that, you know, every lesion is you know, a prime candidate for yourself, you're not going to have great outcomes. Right. Agree. Fair statement. All right. So we, we mentioned a lot, we covered a lot of topics here. Uh, any final, any final remarks or uh, burning desires out of either one of you guys, uh, Arthur, anything we didn't cover? No, I think, uh, you know, it's a, a great conversation. I think as far as developing a program, um, for your community, it's just really, you know, getting the right guys together, having an open dialogue, and, you know, keeping the patients first. And, um, and Shelby, I'd say, uh, you know, you and I probably have an opportunity to do some more renal work together. I mean, sometimes you kind of float off the radar just because of your, the nature of the, your practice, and I don't see you around as much. But I yeah. think we should try to collaborate more, and there, probably I could, you know, send some stuff your way. As far I would as like patients. that. I would like that a lot. Um, and you have my phone number, so we'll just, you know, go back and forth, and maybe we could try to get a, a niche going here. Yeah. All right. Well, good good deal, guys. Uh, really excellent discussion. Um, to our audience, uh, if you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, go ahead and check out our show notes on this episode. If we mentioned anything in particular, like some guidelines or a paper, um, we'll have a brief summary of the talking points and references to any articles or um, staging system that we might have mentioned during the show. And guys, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. Uh, first, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, or whatever. It just helps uh, the platforms know that you value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're putting it out. Uh, Second, if you guys are really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us in a lot of ways uh, and we'd love the feedback. So that wraps it up guys. We'll see you guys next time. Arthur, Shelby, thanks a lot. Thank you. Yep. Thank you.